We're working our way through the book of Micah. This morning, verses 7 through 15 of chapter 5. This is the perfect word of God. Let's give it the attention it is due. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. I was thinking this week about Micah and about March Madness. Might have been the games on my TV in my office. I think Micah would be confused. We yell a lot. Happiness, sadness, anger. We jump up and down. We roll on the floor. We bang our heads against the wall. This level of passion is common for sports and entertainment. Y'all remember concerts? I do. Screaming when the band takes the stage, high-fiving strangers when they start a favorite song. Micah would have no problem with any of this. God made our faculties for joy. He gave us our capacity for pleasure. He wired in us an appreciation for art and skill, determination and excellence. I think Micah would tell you to hoop and holler for your picks and to sing with your band until your throat is sore. But I think he'd also be confused. Because such a passionate people, and in a culture where such unbridled enthusiasm and passion for sports and entertainment is a virtue, that same response to the things that really matter is counted as a vice. Be that passionate for just a moment about your faith and you will hear, whoa, calm down, settle down. You've made your point, don't be a zealot. I find myself responding this way from time to time when reading the Old Testament prophets. Their language and their methods seem so over the top and they harp on the same things again and again. Isaiah stripped off his clothes and wandered around preaching naked. Jeremiah attached a cattle's yoke to his shoulders. And Ezekiel, have you read Ezekiel? Dude, control yourself. By today's standards, Micah's language is repetitive and way over the top. I mean, that'd be okay for sports, but what's he carrying on about anyway? No, Micah is not against our passion. 
But he shows us in his own life that he's willing to apply this passion not just to fun and ultimately trivial things, but to the things that matter more. When it comes to heaven and hell, he thinks being different makes a difference. Another pastor said this about it, the great significance of the prophets is the way they teach us to view the world in which we live always and ever in terms of God's judgment and salvation. What lies behind their repetitiveness is hammering into us this eternal view of life. This morning's oracle begins on the ones in chapter 4 that described the dual roles of God's people in the world. And it builds on the earlier ones in chapter 5 that point to the church and not the nation as a fulfillment of God's promises for his people. God's people, lowly and put down, will eventually become great. Not by their own power or planning, but by God's. And as Micah reveals more and more details of God's plan, we begin to see that what he's telling us to expect is not an event, but a process. Wrapped in the language of their time and place, many Israelites would hear only what they wanted to hear. A promise of the overthrow of Assyria and Babylon, the future greatness of the nation of Israel. But those who listen with faith, remember last week we read, Zechariah and Mary and Simeon and Anna, those who listen with faith, they anticipate a different kind of kingdom. Eventually, every knee will bow to Christ. For now, some do, and those only by grace. It's a process. Eventually, the government of peace will rule the whole earth. For now, that peace is more piecemeal. It's a process. We can see the principle of God's kingdom at work in the church, but those principles are not yet at work everywhere. It's a process. When Hezekiah came on the scene, many in Israel wanted to believe that this king, the reign of this king, would fulfill all of God's promises. And he was a faithful king. He destroyed their idols. He tore down the high places. He pointed God's people back to his word. And God blessed that faithfulness. But if you've read your Bible, you know that those reforms are temporary, as was the peace and prosperity they provided. So you take that temporary peace from Hezekiah, and you try to reconcile that with Micah's verse 9. All your enemies shall be cut off. Clearly, the day Micah has in mind is more than just temporary. And so as we can see... From last week's passage, Micah's vision is not of a future nation called Israel, but a future people called the church, the church of the Messiah, the church of Jesus Christ. And this process of partial and then complete fulfillment is the age of the church, the age in which we live, the process we're a part of today. It extends from the day of Christ's coming through the day of Pentecost when the church receives her power and is completed when Christ returns again. In the Lord of the Rings, after the ring had been destroyed and Sauron vanquished, Tolkien institutes what he called the fourth age, the age of men. And he drew this concept from the words of the Old Testament prophets and their descriptions of this age of the Messiah, that the coming of the Messiah and the establishment of his kingdom usher in an age. It's not just a a dot on a timeline. It's a series of dots 
the events of Christ's coming through Pentecost. And another dot, the day of Christ's second coming, his consummation. And there's a long line of history in between. We live on that line. And what's happening on the line is the expansion of God's kingdom throughout the world. And what Micah says is that by God's grace and by God's power, we, his people, are the ones called to expand that kingdom. Jesus poured out his spirit on his people, the church, starting at the day of Pentecost, only 120 disciples. And there he defined and empowered this age of the Messiah and gave us the power and the marching orders to minister to the world. So with that framework, let's come back to Micah with greater clarity. For his original audience, this is a message of hope. As God promises his people ultimate victory and their role even in the gradual excess, success that leads up to the victory. For us, it's all that. And it's a description. A description of the roles we have during this age. And a description of what God is doing in this age to make us ready for his coming. Verses 7 through 9 are about the dual roles the church has in the world. You might call it the polarizing effect of the ministry of God's grace. Through this ministry of grace, many will be saved, but also many will be condemned. Micah uses two similes, life-giving water and a terrifying lion. Through the church, many will be blessed and many will be condemned. Micah made this point before in chapter 4. The remnant will triumph by bringing the nations into God's salvation. And the remnant will triumph when God uses them to destroy his enemies. This won't happen because of our size, our financial means, or the high esteem in which the world holds us. No, it's quite the opposite. The church, like our Messiah, will be humble by all the world's measures. The impact we have on the world will be only because of God's will and God's power. But being different will make a difference. In the first role, the church fulfills God's promise to Abraham. You remember when God said, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Micah says, then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. Kids, Israel was and is a really dry place. In the southern part of the country, where the kingdom of Judah was, where Micah is, they'd get about an inch and a half of rain per year. In Atlanta, and this was a pretty dry February, we got twice that amount in four weeks. For Israelites, things were so dry, water was a big deal. In the late winter, they depended on the rain, showers on the grass. That's what helped the plants germinate. That's what would help them break ground for spring. And in the winter, when it simply did not rain, dew kept those plants alive. During the night, moisture from the Mediterranean would create massive amounts of dew on the ground. You could see in Israel plants dripping with dew. And that's how God provided refreshment and life for his people. Now, we've had a couple warm days leading up to spring. Maybe you've gone outside for yard work or exercise. But if not this year, you know from past experience the feeling Micah's talking about. 
It's hot. You're parched, sweating under the blistering sun, a mouth so dry it feels hard to open, and cool water. What a relief. But Micah's image is not just one of refreshment. It's also one of hope. It's not just a thirsty person being refreshed. It's, it's a farmer staring out the window at his drought-stricken fields and then watching the rainstorm move over them. That experience of hope. These crops have a future, and that future will provide for us. That water is refreshment and relief and hope. That simile is how Micah describes your role in the world. One of your roles, at least. If we are God's people, his remnant by faith, we are to be for the world like the dew and the rains. Refreshment, relief, and hope. Our being different can make a difference. And how desperately the world needs something different. Sarah Everard was killed this month in London. Despite, the reports say again and again, her doing everything right. Walking home from a friend's house, she stayed on well-lit streets. She stayed on the phone for a good portion of the walk. And yet, Robert Long thrust Atlanta onto the world stage this week with a rampage that left eight dead. And the world is outraged by both situations, as it should be. But the soil from which these events grow and blossom is the soil of this present evil age. That same outraged world is all too willing to till and fertilize this wicked soil until it is perfectly suited to bring forth the kind of tragedies from which it suddenly recoils. What should allow the women of London to walk at night without fear? What would provide relief, refreshment, and hope to their souls? Would it be an increased police presence in the street? No. But that's what the world's clamoring for. What about the Asian community in Atlanta and throughout the United States? What do we learn from the events of this week about what they need to find refreshment, relief, and hope? Is it the elimination of racial animosity That would be good and right, but that wouldn't stop Tuesday's events. What if Sarah Everard had been surrounded in all of London by Christians, real Christians? What if the streets were safe, not because the police made them so, but because the power of God's spirit compelled people to love their neighbor as they love themselves? What if love of God and not merely fear of prosecution is what restrained selfish and violent impulses? What would it feel like for women if men, all men, lived in pursuit of the righteousness of Christ? You know what it would feel like? It would feel like dew in the desert and showers on the grass. Racism is wrong in all of its forms. But we have from Robert Long's own mouth the admission that Tuesday was not about race. It was about disgust with sexual sin. Is it really anti-bias training that will refresh, relieve, and bring hope to the souls of those kinds of women? No. What's needed 
is a society that won't patronize or even tolerate brothels in our mists simply because we've relabeled them massage parlors. What would it feel like to women, not just Asian women, but all women, if men, all men, lived within God's sexual ethic? I'll tell you what it would feel like. It would feel like dew in the desert and like showers on the grass. It's the world's ethic that trivializes sexual pleasure and dehumanizes, often literally, its sources. Those women were not dehumanized Tuesday on account of their race. They were dehumanized the moment, they, the, moment the places they worked were legitimized and allowed to persist in our society. They were dehumanized not by a shooter, but by a culture that glories in their objectification. This is the darkness of the world we inhabit. And this is the darkness into which you are called to bring the light of God. The world lives in the misery that results inevitably from a godless way of life. And Micah calls us to be their breath of fresh air. Like dew that falls from heaven, like rains that water the grass, our way of life, simply the way we live, should refresh, relieve, and bring hope. Your neighbors should love spending time with you. Your classmates should want to be around you. Your clients should tell others how uniquely great it is to do business with you. Those who serve or help you in any capacity should feel good that they got to help you. You'll be different. Yes. And it will make a difference. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. And a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Micah and the prophets were okay being different. Repeating their message, drawing attention to themselves by extraordinary means. And they did this because they believed the message mattered. So in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Micah's lion simile in verses 8 and 9 speaks to the other role of God's people in the world. One that appears unpleasant but does necessarily follow from this first one. This is, incidentally, the same point Micah made earlier using the simile of the ox and the threshing floor where we all got to giggle about the holy heifer metaphor. When we live differently, when we take the good news and righteousness of God into the world, there will be those who oppose it and us and him. Therefore, the church will be used by God to judge and crush his opposition. As one pastor puts it, the world is not permitted to overcome the church. And for those who try, the results will be disastrous. So Micah uses this image of a lion, the lord of the jungle. He rules the domain that he's been given, just as the gospel and ethic of the church rule every inch of God's creation, whether people like it or not. And this puts our willingness to be different to the test. We cannot be intimidated by the world's powers, whether it's social reputation, career advancement, cancel culture, or even wicked and unjust laws. 
To look at some Christians, you'd think that the Bible teaches if you can't beat them, join them. But what the Bible actually teaches, what Micah shows us here, is that being different makes a difference. God's people are to practice and promote godliness in the world. By our godliness, many will be blessed. And yes, by that godliness, those who oppose it will be cut off. Paul makes this this point in 2 Corinthians 2. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And living this way, being different for God, is no easy task. Paul ends that 2 Corinthians 2 passage by saying, who is sufficient for these things? But the answer is, God's people are sufficient. And not because of anything within us, but because of what God himself is doing to make us sufficient. And that's verses 10 through 15. For the world to be refreshed, relieved, and made hopeful, the people of the church have to live godly lives. Here in Micah and the generations after Micah and to and through the times in which we live, God disciplines his people in order to make us holy. He brings hardship and trials and adversity and loss and pain purposefully into our lives, not to punish but to correct. His aim for us Is happiness the only real way happiness can be found, which is holiness? In verses 10 through 13, Micah describes God's systematic removal of all the things we try to rely on instead of God. Things that provide false refreshment, false relief, and false hope. Things that deceive us and lead us away from God. In verses 10 and 11, it's the weapons of the world. For Israel, this was military technology, horses and chariots, fortress cities behind lofty walls. For some, this still holds true today. But for others, it's retirement accounts or the influence mobility and resources buy. When God's people think that their future is secure because of an army or a politician or a vaccine or a plan under our control, God must remove these things from them to make them holy. In verse 12, Micah talks about sorcery. Now that seems strange, like a non-issue for us. Until we better understand what he means. Israel's unfaithful leadership had lost confidence in God's word and his promises. They were anxious about the future. They wanted to have that anxiety relieved. So they started consulting occult practices and sorcerers to calm their fears about what was to come. This means anything we look to beyond God's word and prayer to give us confidence in the future. That's right in God's crosshairs. Is our hope in the future through scripture and prayer or through something that God is going to have to deal with in us? Likewise, in verse 13, when Micah speaks of removing the idols from among his people, he's not just talking about bronze and gold statues. Some of us build our lives around stuff. 
Materialism is an idol. Others around reputation, being liked and well-respected matters above all else. And still others put pleasure as their God. I do what I love to do. I do what makes me happy. Nothing matters more. I deserve to be happy. Holiness requires the removal of anything that draws us away from God. We can't be different from the world if we look just like it. If we're going to bless the world, if we're going to be this light in the darkness, we have to be light. God's blessing and salvation come to the world through holiness. So we can't promote his kingdom as we continue to live for ourselves. So important is this difference to God that he will cut off even the unrighteous among his own people. That's the terrifying truth of verse 15. Unbelievers in the church, the false sons in her pale, will also be removed. Those Israelite rulers in Micah's day who claimed to be sons of Abraham but lived without Abraham's faith and without Abraham's holiness, they would be removed. And anyone in the church who claims with their lips Jesus is Savior but their lives reject him as Lord will be removed. When we baptize Luke in a little bit, we're making this Invisible, significant reality, momentarily visible. We're we're marking him out with water and a sacrament you can see as belonging to God's people, something that's usually invisible. As the son of Christian parents, Luke is one of us. He's a member of the household and family of God. Here, week after week and year after year, he will receive great blessings from God. His parents will read and teach him the scriptures as they also apply them in their own lives, in their marriage, in their parenting. He has a church who loves him and prays for him and will provide godly fellowship and friendships. He'll participate in worship with weekly invitations to cast his cares on the one who cares for him. Weekly reminders to receive God's forgiveness for sin and power for holiness and joy in salvation. His baptism, like yours, means that even when he is utterly despised and rejected by the world, he always has a place of belonging and hope in the church of Jesus Christ. But these blessings are ultimately conditional. For Luke is called to faith and therefore holiness. He cannot give himself faith, but God promises to provide it to all who ask. He cannot make himself holy, but God has provided a way for that by his own power. One of the profound theological truths in infant baptism is how visually clear it becomes That we can do nothing and God can do all things. When we mark out Luke as a member of this family and a recipient of God's good gifts and all these blessings, we're not tempted even for a moment to give the glory to Luke, this infant, as if he's done something. And so all the glory goes where it belongs, to God 
But for Luke to realize the fullness of these promises, it won't be enough to just be a member of the church. Micah says, in anger and wrath, God will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Baptism is a promise and a command. And if Luke or any of us resist the command to remove idolatry from our lives, if we eschew God's holiness in favor of selfish or cooperation with the world, we too will finally be removed. This is the fulfillment of Micah 5. Another pastor said this well. He said, God's remnant, that's us, the church, God's remnant paint a wide, dark line in the world, separating by that line those who are going to heaven and those going to hell. The remnant, the faithful Christians in the world, are those who have the paintbrush in their hand. In the lives of their own children, their neighbors, their workmates, every time they open their mouths on behalf of the truth of Jesus Christ, The day is coming when that line will be obvious to all, even in this world. But right now, only faith can see it. But here's the point. Faith should see it. How do you view the events of the world, the need to be different, and the difference that makes? Notice that we aren't putting people on one side or the other. We're not God, but we're living lives that draw the line, living differently so as to make clear what holiness and what the gospel are. King Ahaz was infamous in Israel for leading God's people into unprecedented idolatry, even child sacrifice. And in response to his wickedness, God allowed Pekah to kill 120,000 of Ahaz's soldiers in one day. But do you think Ahaz understood the connection? No. He went right back to his idolatry. It takes faith to see the real spiritual issue and the meaning of life's events. The world around us is struggling to connect their general misery, events like Tuesday, with the line that God has drawn. They put their trust in the world's resources. So we cannot. We have to be different. They don't believe prayer and God's word is enough to cast out all fear. We have to show them differently. They love their idols. We must love God. We paint that line because being different makes a difference. Many of the people in Micah's audience were miserable. And we know that is true of the world around us. It should not be true of us. So much the opposite that the very way we live should be the dew and the rain for the world, the refreshment, the relief, and the hope that they know deep down they're missing. And that is why God is purifying you. It's why he's purifying his church. It's why Jesus sent his spirit to the church. 
It's why we baptize Luke with promises and with obligations. And that is why the lines we draw in and with our lives matter. Christians, being different makes a difference.